You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. Have you ever had an experience where you did something that caused the air to go out of the room? Like you ask a question or you said something or you did something and you, you know when you asked that question or you said that or you did whatever you did that all of a sudden the atmosphere in the room changed. Like you just sucked the air out of the room. Yes, thanks, Leonard. You're, I'm going to share a story, so I'm glad there's one person in here who has that awkward, just, it just happens in their, my life. Several Christmas Eve services ago, several years ago, there was a family who brought with them a family from another country and another culture. And if you know families from other countries and other cultures, There's different social etiquettes for those things, right? Um, This particular family, the social etiquette for them is men greet men and women greet women, but men don't greet women and women don't greet men. So this family had brought this family from another culture to our church, and I, I sort of knew that vaguely. I've never been to that country to experience it like in real time, but I understood that that kind of thing. But in the moment, you know, when people come to our church, we, one of the goals is we want them to feel welcomed and loved. And so our goal is as you're walking in, you're getting your hand shaken. Is that right? You get your hand shaken and you're getting a smile and you're getting a welcome. And so Pastor Bob strategically sets people so that we can have that kind of feel as people are coming in, that they feel loved and, and know that, that they're here because we love them and we're glad that they're here. So it's Christmas Eve. That time, I'm not the lead pastor. Pastor Bob is speaking, so I'm out in the lobby and I see them coming in. I know they're coming and, and I just go for it because this is what we do. We welcome people. And so I shake the man's hand first and introduce myself. It's so good to have you here. Then I shake the lady's hand, his, his wife, and so glad you're here as well. And that was a little awkward, but I, and I could feel the awkwardness, but it's like every hand I shake, it sort of feels awkward. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, just push through it. And then they had like one of their moms, I'm not sure which one, but she was sort of had that grandma feel about her. And what does a grandma need? Hugs, right? So I'm thinking in this moment, shake his hand, her hand, grandma. I'm just going to go in for a hug because I want her to know that I love that she is here with us. And so, and again, thinking back on it now, I can feel the air in the room just sucking out. I can feel the ones who brought them going, nah, you're like, you're ruining the moment before they even get in to hear the gospel. And I just go in for a hug with grandma. 
Well, grandma like freezes, right? Like there is no like, oh yes, I love you. Grandma stiffens up big time and I just push through the awkwardness <laughs> and go in and just, ah, oh, it's so good to have you here. No doubt, no lie. She whips out her prayer beads and just starts flying through the prayer beads. Why? Because I had made her unclean, right? Because even in my touching her, I had made her unclean. And in that moment, it was like, man, I just blew it. So sorry, Pastor Bob, they probably didn't hear one thing you said at that Christmas Eve service because I blew it and I sucked the air out of the room by not knowing the cultural cues or the social cues that I shouldn't have shaken her hand and I definitely shouldn't have hugged grandma either. Today in Matthew chapter 16 in verses 21 through 28, the air goes out of the room. If you'll remember, there's been this excitement building in Matthew chapter 16. And some would say it is the most pivotal of all of the chapters. And so we looked at it a few weeks ago and we sort of felt this momentum building, this crescendo of the moment. That Jesus takes these religious leaders and he calls them out and says, you guys don't believe. And he tells his disciples, listen, beware of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this, this, this group that is not believing in the word of God, even though it's right in front of them. And then Jesus takes his disciples on a little field trip 30 miles away up to Caesarea Philippi in front of all these other gods and all these other temples. And he says, who do people say that I am? And they walk through a list of, of prophets that people say that Jesus is. And then Jesus asks that most important question that we can answer. He asks the question, but who do you say that I am? And so we're on the edge of our seats. What are they going to say about who Jesus is? And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the king, the son of the living God. And it's this crescendo moment. It's like, yeah, this is what all of the book of Matthew has been leading us towards, is that they would see Jesus for who he is. And now their eyes are open. They see that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, son Bar or, or Simon Barjona, you didn't get this through flesh and blood. This comes through my father has revealed it to you. And then he says to him on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we're like, yeah, let's go, right? That is an offensive term of we're going to take the hill. We're not going to be stopped. He is the Messiah. He is the, 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 the king. And then he gives them the keys of the kingdom being the gospel and says, you're going to take this gospel and you're going to spread the gospel. And what happens here on earth, people's responses to the gospel will be the same thing in heaven. And it's this crescendo moment, this William Wallace and Braveheart moment when he's riding the horse in front of his men and they're about to go and attack the English army for their independence. And he says, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that, to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, right? And it's like, ah, 
and all the guys are yelling and lifting their spears and swords and like, let's go. And this is this moment. And so you think that the next verses are going to build on that. That it's like, let's get on the horse. You get on your horses. Let's go. We're going back to Jerusalem to take the hill. But in verse 21, the air comes out of the room. Because Jesus says this to his disciples who in this moment are like, let's go. Verse 21, for from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Do you feel the air come out of the room? I'm going to build my church, the gates of hell. You've got the keys of the kingdom. Let's go. We're right in front of all of these, these temples of these false gods. And we've got the true God, the true king, the son of the living God. We're going to take the hill. We're going to take the mountain. And then Jesus says, hey, listen, fellas. I want you to know I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And on three days later, I'm going to rise again. The air comes out of the room. You'll notice that phrase, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. This phrase is only used one other time. So go with me back to Matthew chapter 4 in verse 17. And Matthew uses this same phrase. And so what he's doing for us as readers is he's helping us to see that we're bringing a close to one part of Jesus' life. And at this moment, we're starting a new part of Jesus' life. And so if you go back to Matthew chapter 4, in verse 17, it says, From that time, this is after Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness. It says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus at that moment began his earthly ministry of preaching and healing and doing all of these miracles. And now we come to verse 21 where Jesus, where Matthew says, from that time. And so we're changing sort of the focus of the ministry now. It's been preaching and teaching and, and healing and miracles. And now Jesus is beginning to live under the shadow of of the cross. From this moment on, the shadow of the cross is looming on Jesus's life. Because over the next few chapters, four times, he's going to predict his death. He's going to tell them over and over, hey guys, this is what's coming. I know you want me to be the king and the Messiah, but the job's not done yet. There's still more to be done. And so from this time forward, the shadow of the cross is looming on Jesus' life and on the disciples because it says that he must go. This was not an option. Like you can go this path or this path. For Jesus, this was the plan of God for his Life. We know that from Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 10 where it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
This was God's plan that, yes, they would see Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. But it was also a part of God's plan that he would be crushed, that he would suffer and be killed and rise again on the third day. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer and he must die and rise again. It has been said that if you cut the Bible anywhere, it will bleed. Meaning, there is a crimson thread that runs through every page, every verse, every chapter, every book of the Bible. There's this crimson thread that runs. You can go to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, you find this thread of blood that runs through the Bible starting right there in the Garden of Eden. And if you have your Bibles, go there to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. And Adam and Eve have sinned by this moment. They've gotten the, the, the punishment for their sin. He names Eve because she's going to be the mother of all living then in verse 21, it's interesting. It says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. How did the Lord make those garments of skin? He had to kill an animal. And even in the Garden of Eden here, God is beginning to show us this crimson Line that is going to run through Scripture. That Adam and Eve, because of their sin, they were naked and ashamed. And so in Genesis chapter 3, God kills an animal to get skin for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness to say, here, I'm showing you grace. I could leave you in your nakedness and being ashamed, but because I love you, here is some skins for you to wear. And even in that, God was pointing us to the eventual death of Jesus Christ who would shed his blood so that we could be covered by his grace and, and mercy as well, that we don't have to live in our shamefulness, in our nakedness. We don't have to be naked and ashamed because Christ's blood has covered us. If you go to Revelation chapter 13, in verse 8, you find, again, Genesis to Revelation, you find it. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it ends with this idea of everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life before the foundations of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So it's even at heaven and the book of life, it's speaking about this lamb who was slain. You can see how this moment would take the air out of the room. They had just had this confessional, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. When we understand verse 21, that this is the plan for Jesus, it helps us understand Verse 20, because remember how Jesus ended this moment with the disciples in verse 20, this confessional moment. He said, don't tell anyone that he is the Christ. 
Why? Because they didn't have a full understanding. They wanted to follow the Messiah who would give them a crown, but they didn't want to follow the Messiah who would present them with a cross. They wanted the crown and not the cross. And so that's why Jesus in verse 20 says, don't, I don't want you to go tell people that I'm the Messiah yet because the plan is not complete. You think we're going to ride back into horses in Jerusalem and take over Jerusalem and set up the kingdom now, but that's not the plan. The plan is I must suffer and die. We, we know this because look at verse 22 of Matthew 16. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. That's funny right there. You know what I'm saying? You just called him the Christ, the son of the living God. Now you're doing the whole tap on the shoulder. Hey, can we come over here and talk for a second? And you're going to rebuke him. Like you got some serious courage and pride to be able to say to Jesus, hey, I need to have a little talk with you. Like, I get the tap on the shoulder. That happens to me. Hey, can I talk to you? And usually when it's like we're pulled aside, it's not gonna be like, hey, I love you. I'm for you. You're good, right? It's usually gonna be we need to have a little talk about what you said or what you did. And Peter is doing this with the Messiah, the son of the living God. He pulls him aside and here's what Peter says to him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter basically tells Jesus, this is not the plan. You need to stop talking that way because you're scaring the children, right? Like the plan is you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. We're going to take the hill. Let's go, freedom. And you're saying that you're going to suffer? That, that's, not, that's not the plan, Jesus. Then verse 23, Jesus turns to Peter and says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter goes from being this rock on which Jesus is going to advance the church, advance the gospel, to now Peter is a hindrance. You know what that word hindrance could actually be translated as? A stumbling block. So this man who just a minute ago was going to lead the charge, right, to plant the church and send the church out and, and spread the gospel, Jesus is now saying to him, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're getting in the way of the plan of God. What's interesting is if you go back to Matthew chapter 4 again, in that transitional part where you have Jesus interacting with Satan in the wilderness, tempted for 40 days. In verse 10, Jesus has to deal with Satan in this way because Satan's trying to get him off track through the temptations. He's trying to get him to shortcut the process. Again, a crown without a cross. And so he's trying to say, hey, just worship me and I'll give you everything that you need. But what does Jesus say to Satan in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In this moment again, where Jesus is, where is beginning the ministry that is under the shadow of the cross, he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. 
You're distracting me from the mission that has been given to me by my Father. I want to make a quick side observation here for you, and this is free of charge. Satan will try to get us off track in different ways, and I would say he can even use good people to get you off track. Peter's not necessarily a bad person. But Peter didn't see the whole picture in this moment. Peter wasn't grasping that this is what the plan was. And so I want to just caution you in even good people, good, quote, Christians can distract you from the mission that God has for your life. So how would I encourage you to to not get distracted? Stay in the word. Right? This is the infallible word of God. This is your guide. This is your counselor. So make sure that whatever, again, whether it's me or it's a counselor or it's a friend, make sure whoever you're getting counsel from that it always lines up with the word of God. Because right? even good people can give you bad advice. And even in this moment where Peter's like, no, that's not going to be the plan, Lord. He says, no, this is the plan. Because this is what the Father has called me to do. And then he says to Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's interesting to me because Jesus has already sort of had this conversation with them in Matthew 16. Remember, they're talking about the bread and they're like, did you have bread? Do I have bread? The bread of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And Jesus is like, guys, you're missing the point. I'm not talking about physical bread. I'm talking about their unbelief. I'm talking about their teachings. And here Jesus is doing it again with them. Peter, you're missing the point. Your mind is so focused on the here and now that you're missing the bigger picture. You're missing the plan of God. You see, they would have known that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. Psalms 22, Isaiah 53 Those are all prophecies about this Messiah who would come, who would suffer. But in this moment, their mind is so focused on the here and now that they're missing that this is God's plan, actually. And you know that because it's been prophesied in the Old Testament that this king would be a suffering king. They were setting their minds on the things of God. They were not setting their mind on the things of God. Instead, they were on the things of man. Then verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said, here's the plan for my life, death, burial, resurrection. Here's the plan for your life. If you want to come after me, You got to deny yourself. You got to take up your cross and you have to follow me. To deny oneself is to literally disown oneself. It is to say, not my will. If if I could put a word for you beside let him deny himself, it would be for you to say to the Lord, it's not my will, not my will. It, it is, it is a, the idea of saying, my life doesn't belong to me. That's what it means to deny oneself. 
is to say, my life is not my own. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to disown yourself. Then you're going to have to take up your cross. To take up one's cross is to say, I want God's will to be done in my life. So to say, deny myself is to say, not my will. And to take up one's cross is to say, I want God's will. Because what was God's will for Jesus' life? The cross. They were missing that in the moment. And he's making it clear to them, no, the cross is a part. This suffering is a part of the plan. And so when it comes to taking up our cross, it is to understand that it is God's will for our lives. To take up one's cross is not your difficult marriage. You'll hear people say that, that's my husband or my wife, that's just my cross to bear, right? Or where you work at, that's just my cross to bear. Your mental health issue, that's my cross to bear. Your physical suffering, that's my cross to bear. And I would say, I understand the heart behind what you're saying there. But I don't think that's what Jesus means here when he says take up one's cross. What he is saying is to take up a cross means to identify with Christ. That's what it means to take up one's cross. Here's how Paul would put it in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 to help us understand. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, not my will. But Christ who lives in me, God's will, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So to deny oneself is to say, not my will. To take up one's cross is to say God's will, identifying with Christ, and then to follow me, to follow Jesus, is to live it out. It's the old game we used to play on the playground called follow the leader. And you would go around the playground and whoever was the leader, you had to do everything that the leader did. So if he went up and went down the slide, you went up and went down the slide. If he crawled under the merry-go-round, you crawled under the merry-go-round. Whatever he did or she did, you followed their example. And when Jesus says, follow me, he says, you're following my example. It cost Jesus his life to redeem us from our sins and make a way for us to be right with God. In the same way, it is going to cost us our lives if we choose to follow Jesus. Sadly, we have changed the wording of this verse to fit our lives and our culture And instead of translating the verse and looking at the verse through Jesus' eyes and seeing what Jesus says clearly to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, we have changed the wording to say this. If anyone would come after me, no pressure, let him love himself and take up his coffee and follow me when it is convenient for you. This is the American gospel. If anyone would come after me, no pressure. You do you. Let him love himself. Because you can't truly love God until you love yourself. And take up your coffee. Because you're comfortable when you got a cup of coffee in your hand. I know the coffee people are like, uh, makes me sick to my stomach. right? But you get what I'm saying. 
You got a cup of coffee, that's comfortable. Let's sit down, let's have a conversation and follow me. Listen, when it's convenient for you, when it fits into your schedule, follow me. We have made following Jesus about comfort and convenience. And yet Jesus says it's about denial and surrender. Denying yourself and saying, not my will. Taking up your cross and saying, God's will be done. And following Jesus saying, I am all in with you no matter the cost. As Peter would rebuke Jesus because he wanted the crown without the cross, the same could be said of so many, quote, Christians. We want the crown without the cross. We want to be identified with Jesus, just not the hard stuff. We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to be identified with him. We don't want to go all in with him because there's a few things about Jesus that just rubs our culture wrong. There's a few things that he has said that would cause us to be in a social setting a little bit awkward. Here's what I was praying and thinking through this this week. I just wonder in my heart, If this is why so many people, young people, have left the church, because we sell them a gospel that is about comfort and convenience. We sell them a gospel that is going to make them feel good about themselves, rather than a gospel of denial, a gospel of surrender. Parents, listen to me. It's never going to be comfortable and convenient for your kid to be led to follow Jesus. Ever. I don't care if they homeschool, public school, Christian school. Don't go to school. It's never going to be popular. It's never going to be like, this will be the right time. It's always going to be. This is what Jesus is saying. It's always going to be following me will be denial and surrender. And we must lead our kids to that end. Not you come to youth group and church when it's convenient and comfortable for you. You don't come to young adult ministry when it's convenient and comfortable for you. Your schedule's too full. You've got too much going on. And so what's the thing we take out? Well, I don't want them to get burned out with Jesus. Took the air out of the room, you know? And that's what happened in that moment. That's not, they didn't, they didn't want that. that. That wasn't the plan in their mind. The plan in their mind was take the hill, 
right? We're going to take over. Jesus says, no, it's really death. It's really denial. It's really surrendering all that you are. I, I love you, church. In verses 25 through 27, he gives you three reasons why this is the life he's called us to. This is why we deny ourselves and we take up our cross. We identify with Jesus. We go all in. Three reasons. You'll note it if you look at your text in verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27. All starts with the term for. That is reason, right? So Jesus is saying, these are the three reasons why I want you to know that it is worth it for you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Look at the first one in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, listen, for my sake, will find it. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, boys, it's worth it to follow me because if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to really save your life. The return on your investment in your death in the identifying with me is of much more value than you saving your life here and now. The return on investment is worth it. Try to save your life, have your best life now, Apart from Christ, you're going to end up losing your life. But if you lose your life now, if you lose yourself in Christ, if you deny yourself and take up your cross, identify with Christ, you're actually at the end of the day saving your life. That's the first reason, he says. If you, this is how it works. This is kingdom economics. You actually lose to gain. Verse 26, the second reason for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is speaking of value here. What is it going to profit a man if he has everything in this world that he wants? So think Elon Musk, right? Jeff Bezos. Guys who have money, money is not even in their equation of their mind. They have so much money. They can do whatever they want. They have the whole world. But what is it going to profit them if they are the wealthiest people in the world, but at the end of the day, they lose their soul? They die without Christ. The value of the kingdom is so much more value of value than the things of this world. And Jesus' point is you can have all the stuff here, but if your soul, your heart is not right with your creator, it doesn't end well. The value of the kingdom is worth giving your life for. And then last, verse 27, he says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the, in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The idea is Jesus will reward you for the sacrifice you make for him. He sees. He knows. 
He knows the sacrifice that you're making at your job to be identified with Christ. He knows the sacrifice you're making in your marriage to lay down your life for your spouse. He knows the sacrifice that you are making to spiritually invest in the life of your kids. He knows the sacrifice you are making to spread the gospel. He knows that and he will reward you. We sing a song like he won't fail, right? And we declare that. That's what we're saying is he notices everything and he's not gonna one day be like, well, you didn't do good enough, right? He's watching your life and he will reward you someday for what you have done for him and the sacrifices that you have made for him and how you laid down your life for him. You see, the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. But in coming to die, you will actually live. So it would be come to die to live. This is the call to follow Jesus. A costless Christianity is no Christianity at all. I would take it a step further and say a crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. If following Jesus does not cost us, then maybe we're not following Jesus, but an idol that looks a lot like Jesus without the hard stuff. Jesus led the way through his death, burial, and resurrection. It was part of the plan. It is the same plan for us. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2 and 3, he says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And listen, here's for us so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As Jesus led by example, who came and died to actually live, so we follow his example, and we come to die to live, and we're encouraged by the cross and the resurrection to continue to live our life for him. We give Peter an awful hard time, and I think Matthew is focused on Peter so much because God would use Peter amongst the Jews to advance this gospel that he is being taught and learning. And so he gives us all the views of Peter. And in this moment, we've seen this confessional theology of Peter that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we see he missed the functional theology of it, that he missed living it out. And he thought it was going to be crown with, it was going to be the crown without the cross. And so we wonder, did Peter really get it? Did he finally come around and understand what Jesus meant by it? Well, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 4, listen to verses 12 and 13 and 19. I think Peter ultimately got it. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings Take up your cross, identify with him, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When the Son of Man comes in glory and rewards those. He's got Matthew 16, 24 through 27 on his mind. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will take up your cross Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good, what? Following Jesus. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, what in many ways, what a heavy text today. That we come off this pinnacle moment with the disciples and Jesus and you are the Christ And then the air goes out of the room. You must suffer. You must die. You must be buried. You must rise again. This was the plan. And not only was it the plan for you in our salvation, but for all those who would follow you, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow you. Death and surrender as well. So Lord, I pray that we would be a church that doesn't sell the gospel short. That we would not just be a church that has a confessional theology, but we would be a church that has a functional theology as well. That we would not just be a church that believes these things about Jesus, but that we would be a church that behaves in such a way that we're identified with Jesus. Help us in our personal lives, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our workplaces to go all in for you. To not be tricked into comfort and convenience when you've called us to denial and surrender. For the person that sits in this room and doesn't have a right relationship with you, I pray that today they would see their need for a Savior. They would see that you went to the cross for them. You died in their place and you were buried and you rose again. And that this has been the plan. Grace is available to them and may they respond to your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.